0: That's kind of That's gonna- Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Lee Claire Laberge. Uh, Lee Claire is the author of Marx for Cats: A Radical Bestiary, a really cool and interesting new book. You also check out so Lee Claire. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you guys so much for having me.
0: So, Lee Claire, basic first question: What made you want to write this book? It, it's such an interesting way to approach Marxist theory. So, how did you decide to pursue this big theory book and this question? of how it relates to animal studies, or if you think that's a proper term or not, let me know.
1: (laughs) You know, it's a, it's, the answer is sort of uh, two part. Um, At the very academic level, my previous book uh, called Wages Against Artwork, um, I looked at Uh, artists who work with animals as part of their artwork and who frequently put animals in employment-like positions as a sort of artistic gambit. Uh, So I was interested in questions about animals and the economy, but that doesn't really lead to this book per se, which is in a sense a sort of, it was sort of an experiment. I mean, I had done a series of cat videos in which I explained basic Marxist terms, alienation, commodity, money, labor, finance, to a group of cats um, sitting around me. Um, And this was a sort of pedagogical exercise, like, could fun cat videos be a way to introduce students to Marx? Um, And the answer to that question is yes. Um, I think actually the cats enjoyed it too. Those videos are up at MarxForCats.com if people want to watch them. And uh, this sort of little, you know, pedagogical slash artistic project caught the attention of uh, several um, arts books publishers who asked me if there was a visual archive here. Um, As we all know, cats are such a presence, particularly in discussions of work, not work, labor, politics, internet memes. Um, And so... Uh, you know, I didn't know the pandemic was starting, but let's go back to spring 2020. Um, I sort of just took a week or two, and I thought, could you, could you write a book about Marxism and cats? And I had done some research uh, in, a, in a previous project on 19th century American banking, so I knew of terms like wildcat banking and wildcat banks, and of course, in the 20th century, we have terms like a wildcat strike, um, but you know, the pandemic took hold and I was sort of uh, holed up in a room and um, I just began to think about what it would mean to try to produce a Marxist narration, a long durée Marxist narration through the protagonist of a cat. And there are incredible archives um, that are available online, particularly archives in the Middle Ages. I had never done Uh, work in those periods before Uh, so it it really did start experimentally and almost as a joke and you know and I don't mean that in any dismissive or pejorative way but the more I wrote the more serious the book got and the more it seemed to me that this kind of narrative arc this kind of historical arc could take on an animal-centered subject and do similar explanatory work at the level of historical causality and causation. Um, and then it was also just so much fun. Um, I mean, as your listeners may or may not know, I think academic publishing, um, is in a little bit of a state of crisis. Um, and, and I think it's harder and harder to get books published, uh, and and part of me wanted to ask, like, what would it mean just to have fun with academic publishing? So this is an academic book; it comes out from Duke University Press. But I, it was fun to write, and I hope it's fun to read.
0: Lee claire I, I wanted to kind of go back to um, what I think that you you're, you talk about in the the sort of the early parts of the book, which is um, thinking about Marxism through the the lens of cats, or uh the interaction is part of a much larger tradition of just human fascination with cats. I mean you go all the way back to Charlemagne. Um uh, you know he he styled himself as a lion which stuck for European royalty for I mean you know till present day really. Uh what 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 can we say about why people are or where does this come from this kind of uh interest in cats as representative of all manner of things?
1: Um, you know, it's such an interesting question. And I I started in the early feudal era with, with Charlemagne, but one could have started earlier. Um, obviously, the Egyptians are famous for their deities, their cat-like deities, their animal deities. That is so far outside of the scope of of my um, expertise. So I tried to follow the sort of Marxist line of the history of capitalism begins with feudalism. And Charlemagne is, in a sense, the first feudal character who, as you say, was a lion, styled himself um, as a lion. But, you know, the larger question of why the cat and why the cat shows up in so many discrete economic archives over so many different regions and countries really over, I mean, this book charts a 1200 year history, but one could go longer. I mean, at a certain level, I don't know what an answer to that would look like without sort of universalizing and positing a kind of er historical subject. Um, That said, I have read, I don't know if it's true, I don't know what it would mean for such a claim to be true, that the the feline, not just the cat, but the feline uh, writ large is among the most represented animals in human culture. Now, how does that intersect with all the particular cultures, classes, races, times, ethnicities, nation states, religions? I mean, you know, partly it's a domestic animal, so it's available. Uh, But I don't don't know that the question can be answered in any satisfactory way that's not actually sort of playful and cat-like. And I think that's part of the gambit of the book and part of the fun of the book.
0: So why don't we get into it? Because it's just so interesting what you did here. So the first section is titled Medicine Menagerie, the feudal mode of production and its cats. So having never worked in early medieval contexts, like how did you approach this? And and what did you find that focusing on cats revealed about the feudal mode of production and its intersection with Marxist theory and sort of this pre-capitalist form of political economic organization?
1: Well, I think, you know, one thing that the, that the structure of the book allowed me to do starting in the Middle Ages was sort of posit, again, uh, at the level of the story, at the level of the sort of genre, the long durée Marxist history. So he's very influenced by something like Giovanni Zorigi's The Long 20th Century, which I cite in the book, or uh, Perry Anderson's Lineages of the Absolutist State, or uh, his work on the transition from feudalism to capitalism. You know, but then also within Marxism um, and in, including Marx himself, absolutely. Um, there's a there's a tendency, I think, still to posit the Middle Ages as a sort of radical other, a radical other to capitalism and even a radical culture uh, rather radical other to modernity, which in many ways is true, in many ways isn't. But, you know, the animals in the Middle Ages were taken they were taken seriously as subjects, as economic actors, in a way that for most Marxists, you know, what modernity essentially does is sort of um, desacralize that space, right, and render that space somehow uh, more human, less animal, more oriented towards wage labor. You know, without, without those sort of forms of social organization, uh, animals in a sense have more I mean, they absolutely have more power. They absolutely have more aura, to use a Benjaminian term. They absolutely have, in a sense, more freedom to define themselves and be defined uh, in a way that I think gives them more agency than than we're used to. And so positing that otherness and being able to both play with it and then follow the transition um, was, was very important uh, for the book.
0: So I'd love to hear more about, like, what did they specifically illuminate about this moment of a transition and you focus in particular on sort of like cats as associated with kingness and then cats as sort of like the devils you know bad, good mm-hmm. cats, bad cats so mm-hmm. can you talk maybe go a little bit into the details of, of what you're doing here because it's, it's such a long period of history but i think so crucial to understanding marx's theory yeah. it's than what you're doing here
1: so um I posit what I call uh, a lion-cat dialectic, and this is this is based on uh, Hegel's famous lords-bondsman or master-slave um, dialectic, in which these kind of crucial terms of hierarchical otherness that are independent in the Middle Ages. You know, you have the the man, the lord of the manor, uh, who is who is a ruler, who is an owner in a way that we don't, we don't have a sense of ownership today because he's an owner of other subjectivities, is nonetheless dependent upon um, his slave or his serf or his, his, his bondsmen, those who are in bondage, to both work for him and provide him a sense of identity. Um, and this is such a crucial pa- passage or such a crucial figure in Marxist emancipatory writing, how this is essentially an unstable binary, and the fact that the master requires recognition uh, from his bondsmen ultimately leads to an overcoming of that very sense of mastery. And what I try to do in the book is, is take this, this, uh, this dialectical tension um, between the master, the ruler, and the the bondsman or the you know the slave or servant, and put it into feline form, and it works out quite well in history to do it because you know as you pointed out, Derek, uh, royalty, privilege, uh, power, um, in the Middle Ages is associated with with large cats. I mean, primarily with the lion, but but also with panthers, with with ocelots, I mean, with, with different, um, with different cats, different large cats. And then as many of your readers will know, you know, the site of like radical disorder, sexuality, chaos, uh, anti-masculine, anti-church, anti-state, you know, witchcraft throughout the latter part of this period, um, is really located in the cat, particularly the black cat. Um, there are other animals there, too, but the cat is absolutely the predominant animal. So the black cat uh, and the tension between the lion, the regal lion, and what he, it's almost always a he, represents, and what the black cat represents, usually associated with female sexuality, but not always, um, they become a sort of historical driver within the book that drives the narrative, right? And as they begin to have to confront each other in a similar way that, according to sort of Marxist economic history, the limitations on the feudal mode of production, lack of access to labor, lack of access to technology, even lack of access to land at a certain point, births capital, these contradictions, birth, the beginning of the capitalist mode of production. So in the book, the tension between the lion's uh, kingliness, his his um, associations with the Catholic Church, with Christ himself, and the disorder of the black cat come into dialectical tension and, in a sense, collide and birth a new mode of production, which in the book is the second section of the book, um, which looks at the beginning of... You know, revolution, colonization, slavery, you know, the sort of what what used to be called the age of exploration in a kind of 1970s historical narration. And of course, what we now think of as the age of the beginning of European empire colonization globalization of capital, um, which then is going to get told through different cats. So the structure of the book is every chapter, every moment of economic history sort of has its own cat to guide it. And that's to guide the reader through the archives, but also the Marxist theorist through the theorization of a kind of economic problem and possibility.
0: Did you notice in your reading on Marxist theory from the nineteenth and twentieth and twenty first centuries and uh, identification with cats in this medieval period, or is this something that you're drawing out from the period itself?
1: No, I didn't notice it so much. I wouldn't say I mean their associations with cats themselves, but no, not with the not with the medieval period. um I you mean know, the famous marx the famous pre 20th century Marxist study of the Middle Ages is probably Ingels's The Peasant Wars in, in Germany. Um, and, and no, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, there's a language of animality, but no, not a focus on cats from that particular retrospection to a previous historical moment.
0: Interesting. Um, so why don't we move on to that, that part two, which is The Feline Call to Freedom. Slavery and revolution in an age of empire, fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred, and we, well, you, you do talk about you know lynxes and tigers, and we'll get into that in a second. But what do you think is the important thing to understand from this seven hundred? You just spent seven hundred years, eight hundred to fifteen hundred, and now you're going to focus on sort of this more micro period. And as the book goes on, uh, as as often happens, sort of the 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 chronological span um, condenses or narrows. So. What is looking at cats teach us about, you know, this early cat, this, this transition from mercantilism to capitalism or a proto capitalism, depending on who you ask, what, what is looking at cats help us see that we wouldn't otherwise see by like studying Braudel or whatever the case may be. Mm. Um,
1: yeah, studying Braudel. I mean, even though he does refer to, you know, these non-market zones as kind of a jungle, as I, as I mentioned, um, in the book, um, well, uh, the the earlier part of that, so sort of the the early uh, sort of European um, entreaties, sallies into um, the Indigenous Americas, um, allow for a different kind of presentation of an animal alterity. So, you know, when European um, conquerors uh, settler colonists land in the new world they they are they glimpse a nature which to them has a sort of radical otherness of a non-cultivated scene Um, it's not true of course but that is their perception and they also are given I think only limited access to the deities the religions uh, the cultures of that new world in part because they're intent on destroying them. So the, the cat, the magic cat, um, the Mishu Pishu, this is a cat that is, um, this is a deity uh, along primarily the East coast and Northeast coast of the United States and what's now um, Canada is sort of used to show a land that is going to be overrun, a land that is going to be destroyed to set in place new world capitalism in the United States. And then chapter four, the, or ch- the end of chapter three and chapter four on sort of the two great bourgeois revolutions, where what we can speak, speak of as a capitalist state comes into being. Um, they, you know, Marx has this famous line. And one of the famous lines of uh, Marxist history is that bourgeois revolutions sort of recycle what had come before that they're that they're not nearly as innovative as they make themselves out to be, and so in the case of the American Revolution, they styled themselves as a kind of. Uh, m- Medieval royalty. I mean, it sounds so surreal to say, because of course the claim of the American Revolution is we're breaking away from these old world traditions, traditions, and we are instituting a radical new democratic order. And yet they were all completely obsessed with lions. And those who were cast out of the American revolutionary scene, Thomas Paine uh, is one example, was condemned as a cat sodomite. And I mean, so the the sort of archive that starts to come out is in the newness of the bourgeois revolutions, we get a recycling of the old, and not only the old, but it, through the through the lens of the feline, the old and aristocratic, or the old and landed, the old and middle, medieval. And so I think that's an interesting site again to point out a history that. Um, You know, somebody like Neil Davidson, uh, a famous uh, Marxist historian who wrote this book, how 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 revolutionary were the bourgeois revolutions by using the figure of the cat, the lion in particular, I'm able to say, you know what, in the case of America, the American Revolution? Not really. I mean, he obviously draws that conclusion for very different reasons, but I think it's interesting that a cat archive sort of amplifies and diversifies how we might go about making that claim.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about the lynx specifically and sort of the lynx position as a cat?
1: Um, Well, the lynx, uh, particularly the fat-faced lynx, uh, was not only a a deity um, of Algonquin nations, but actually was uh, sort of coincident with, was a creation, a a coincident with the creation of Earth itself um, and was a sort of... um, Uh, a figure of protection, a figure of uh, generation. Um, So the lynx as a cat in the indigenous Americas uh, is used in one way uh, as a protector, as a deity, as a, as a war maker in the sense of, of protection. Um, But it also starts to come into the English language at this time um, as a creature with a particular acuity and a particular eyesight. And these are sort of terms that or associations that still resonate with us today in many facets. So I wanted to trace out that lineage, show its its site of historical production originally, what it comes from, and then also show what gets destroyed by um, by European colonialism of the new world.
0: Could you actually talk a little bit about this minor section? I think people would be particularly interested in it, titled "The Lion Cat Redux of the American Revolution," and how your focus illuminates the revolution.
1: Well, um, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, uh, I mean, again, as I said, the 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 French and the American in in Marxist circles are, or used to be, maybe this is changing, but perceived as the two great bourgeois revolutions. The real sort of coming of a new order, a democratic nation state um, based not wholly, but in part on wage labor, which will become more and more dominant as the solidification of the nation state goes on. Um, And and then the sense of the American revolution, which of course comes before the French revolution, (coughs) excuse me, The radical newness to with which this has been attended by historians, by propagandists, by uh, people who write books like the founding fathers, you know, these sort of celebratory books um, is really sort of sacrosanct that that the American experiment, you know, the great I'm putting that in quotes. Your readers might not be able to see it, um, but that there's something so revolutionary in history itself about what's going on here. So the lion-cat redux is essentially a restaging of what I just described during the the feudal era, where the lion is the king and the cat or the black cat, the domestic cat is the sort of bondsman and they're they're trapped in this dialectic. Um, That gets replayed in the American Revolution, through the founding fathers themselves, or I shouldn't, I don't know if Thomas Paine is considered an actual founding father, but through many of the signatories of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the sort of um, political participants in agitating uh, for a break from uh, Great Britain for the founding of a new nation. Many of them, particularly the more conservative ones are on the sides of lions. Like, what do I mean by that? They dress like lions. They style themselves in lions. They decorate their house with lions. And then the case of Thomas Paine, the one who's cast out, um, who in fact is almost executed in France, uh, gets associated with the domestic cat. And as, as American history starts changing and becoming more the sort of class categories we might recognize today of a landed upper class, uh, I wouldn't really say a working class, but a landless class dependent upon um, informal employment or household employment, or in some cases, wage labor. Again, they start to be associated with the domestic cat. So all throughout New England, uh, we have the sort of uh, rehearsal of the same kind of witch trials that were common in medieval Europe, only now being staged in a quote unquote radically new scene. So I think the, I think the historical repetition here is really interesting. I mean, there's something generic about the use of these particular kinds of cats, which just as it repeats in culture, also repeats in economic history and in Marxist history, no less than in other histories.
0: So, do you think there's a universalism there? Because uh, earlier in the conversation, um, uh, you were skeptical of the universal claim, but but is there one here? It seems like you're identifying one. I wouldn't.
1: I wouldn't say it's a universalism because I don't know that it will continue. But I, I would use the term genre. I mean, you know, I'm a. I'm a. Trained as a literary scholar and, and a genre, you know, it's a it's a certain repetition of a story with certain characters and certain denouements. And I think the generic identification and the generic repetition across modes of production is interesting. I don't think I would say universalism. I think I'm too allergic to the term. Uh, but I could. But I. But I see your question, and I, I can be sympathetic to the question.
0: So there are repeat, repeating genres, which in Western forms.
1: Yes. Basically. Yes.
0: Yes. Then the question is to what degree is that universalistic or not? Because I do think there's a universalistic strand in Marxist theory. I think it would be, do you you disagree with that?
1: Um, I think, I think there's a tendency to universalize as a political position, um, And I certainly think there's a structural indication within Marxist theory that you would say these structures will repeat under these conditions. Universalism, I would say, has more of a timeless quality. That's how I would interpret it, which I would hope the best or even the worst Marxists would be somewhat allergic to. But I I can see uh, your point.
0: Yeah, there's a certain humanism. And the question is, can you have a non-universalistic humanism? To me, I'm not sure one really can. Um, but And I think that's an impulse, especially to Marxist moral theory, is is this sort of common okay. equality of human beings, which to me is a universalistic claim. Um, but maybe, yeah, no, but, but that's a conversation for a different time. So let's talk a little bit about the revolutionary, which I think leads naturally, and, and that's your next chapter on tigers and tigers. And so could you maybe talk about the distinction that you're drawing there and how this helps illuminate in this particular case, sort of the, the one of the foundational bourgeois revolutions? the French revolution.
1: If not, if not the foundational bourgeois revolution, certainly for Marxists. I don't know that that's, that that's still true, but certainly for Marx himself and certainly for Marxist historians writing in the sixties, seventies, eighties, someone like Eric Hobsbawm, I think that's, that's certainly true. Um,
0: What do you think would be replaced by today? What do you think Marxist theorists are replacing it with?
1: I mean, as I try to, as I try to do in the book, Um, I try to join the French Revolution with different New World uprisings, like particularly the Haitian Revolution. And I think at a certain point, the Haitian Revolution has to be included as other quote-unquote great revolutions. Is it a bourgeois revolution? No, I don't think you can say it's a bourgeois revolution. But I think it opens the door to thinking about um, non-state forms and the potential for them to birth new societies to critique old societies as every bit as important in the sort of marxist history of the development of capitalism that then you can get from just looking at a at a state form at, at the U, you know the american or the french um, revolution so the
0: incorporation of the of the 1791 haitian revolution into the larger story of the french revolution or the bourgeois yes. revolution basically that you think are doing because then it's the incorporation of of, of, a, of a race-based revolution is that the idea
1: well it's race-based but it's also it it centralizes the question of slavery the question i mean you know the other thing the american revolution is famous for and this is in the work of someone like hannah arendt is is having a state revolution that promises, you know, s- full enfranchisement that doesn't address or ameliorate mass race based slavery. I mean it's it's it's, you know, it's right. its own historical conundrum and the Haitian Revolution in part addresses that. But again, I think the Haitian Revolution I'm thinking in the works of somebody like, you know, uh, Michelle Raffcio or Sibylla Fisher. It, ha- it, it it itself has to open the door to other New World slave uprisings that we know are happening or were planned to happen. You know that maybe didn't happen. Um, so I think it's it's a site of the amelioration of that
0: as, as part of this emerging world system that Marx yes. identified. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, exactly. That's very, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to clarify because I think my my reading of, of Marxist theorists so they still seem to center the french revolution generally but
1: never through cats
0: (laughs) (laughs) no never through cats let's talk about that um
1: no they do they do and i you know and it's i it's it's a it's a problem but it's also something understandable if you look at the marxist theorists who are producing the canon which we have inherited as marxism if we were reading uh you know, world systems, Marxism from the seventies and eighties, uh, we would get a different organization of revolutions. You know, even something like G- Giovanni Arrighi's book does not center the French revolution. I mean, true, it's a, it's a different history, but I think you get my point. Um, so the French revolution, we
0: like we're, we're in favor of Wallerstein and his disciples.
1: <laughs> I'm glad to know that. Um, the, the French revolution, I, I call them the book, a revolution of tigers, for multiple reasons, one because they they predominate in revolutionary discourse, both within France. Uh, so the 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 poor are tigers, the Jacobins are tigers, the sans culottes are tigers. Um, but then outside of France, the revolutionary Haitians are tigers. I mean, the the tiger itself in this period, the 18th century, leading up to the French Revolution and the work of something like um, Buffon's natural history gets sort of defined as the, the er opposite to the lion, right? So Buffon actually says in his natural history, the tiger takes all that is wonderful about the lion and sort of enjoins it to the worst aspects of a black cat, right? I mean, it, it, there's nothing noble about it it, it's just out for destruction. It has no politics, it has no religion. Um, and what I found is that by using the tiger, one can not only work through the French Revolution as it takes place in France, but also as it begins the, the, the effects of that revolution, You know, the enfranchisement of all of France's colonial subjects, for example, uh, in the early part of the French Revolution that can also be understood through the tiger. And then, you know, probably the most famous book ever written by a Marxist about the Haitian revolution, C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobin, that too is filled with references to tigers in both the perceived antisocial association. So uh, the French imperialists are tigers. Um, at the same time, the French imperialists are calling people like uh, Jean-Jacques de Salines, um, or Toussaint Louverture tigers for their own depravity. So it becomes really a sort of term of feline conjecture. Um, it's a term that is both revolutionary in the best way of the word and also revolutionary in the worst way of the word as associated with France, which is the beginning of the terror. And then you just have, you know, you have the whole sort of gamut of French revolutionaries, whether it's Robespierre or Babeuf or Jean-Paul Morat being referred to repeatedly as cats and tigers. I mean, this is in the historical archive. This is not something that I discovered in my own work, um, by the way. I mean, French historians of the 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 18th century. The
0: Massacre, like one of the famous essays.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So, you know, in in a way, this is the section of the book that required the least amount of archival research on my part because there have been so many wonderful books and articles about The radicality of French cats in the 18th century, but what I try to do is say that that history can also be an economic guide to the larger transitions of capital capitalism that the French Revolution both tries to critique and engenders.
0: Hello Prestige Heads, Danny here to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now many of us today are forced to move around the country to go where our lives take us, and that's true for me too. This has made it unsurprisingly somewhat difficult to stay in touch with family members, but Aura Digital Frames has really come to the rescue, especially since I had a baby. I'm able to send my parents and other family members constant updates about my kid's life, which of course allows them to feel more closely connected to both me, and more important for them, more closely connected to him. And for those worried about the fact that Aura Digital Frames is a tech adjacent to GIFT, don't worry, because it's so easy to start using. I can upload photos right from my phone in just a click. It'll even pair photos together for me. And happily, there's no memory cards, there's no USBs, nothing like that is required. See why Aura was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, the strategist, and Wired. So, from now through Black Friday and Cyber Monday, visit AuraFrames.com and get $40 off their best selling Carver matte frame with the code Prestige. This is their best deal of the year, so get yours now. That's A U R A Frames.com with the promo code Prestige. And as always, terms and conditions apply. So I think this brings us naturally to the 19th century and the appropriation of cats. So what yes. happens when the bourgeoisie begin to assert themselves against the aristocracy in the sort of the period of classical marxism? H- how does this perspective illuminate that, you know, well-trodden era?
1: <laughs> well, they they take cats in. I think this is the era that we can begin to in our in our own language with not too much historical as- historical alienation, excuse me, begin to think about what we might call a pet, uh, a sort of a sort of non-economic site of emotional cathexis to a domestic animal that lives with you. I mean, this itself is new to the period. This is one of the inventions of the French, not French Revolution, but of the, you know, the Enlightenment, the French 18th century, uh, we might say. Um, and Just as the aristocracy had long sort of used cats against the landless masses, the peasants, the bondsmen, the bourgeoisie sort of adopts the domestic cat as a way to position itself between the aristocracy and an emergent proletarian. And this is one of the lessons that we get on offer in in the book that you just mentioned, Robert Darton's The Famous, uh, The Great Cat Massacre. Um, So the bourgeoisie, in a sense, is willing to treat its its cats, its pets, its site of, you know, emotional cathexis and tenderness um, with a social care and concern that it's not willing to afford an emergent proletariat at the same
0: time. What cathexis means? Because I don't think most listeners will know what that means. Kind of a complicated concept.
1: Sure. So, an emotional cathexis—it's a psychoanalytic term for a sort of in, a sort of a t- intense emotional attachment that is a little bit beyond reason, right? Um, so, you know, if you think of uh, the the craziness that comes with like a romantic infatuation or falling in love, uh, that's an emotional cathexis, right? right. Um,
0: that's for, for the first time, and pets in general yes. for the first time. right, yes.
1: Great. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but that is an attachment that aristocrats also don't have to cats, right? So this is a way for a bourgeoisie, an emergent bourgeoisie to sort of culturally differentiate itself, but also economically differentiate itself. Um, and it's particularly pronounced in France of all places. I mean, the, you know, still known for its love of cats. So uh, it, it's resonant then, it's resonant now.
0: And so, what do you think this helps us understand about the rise of the bourgeoisie from the Marxist perspective the, you know the, this transition to a new mode of production?
1: Yeah, I think it under I think I'm going to answer your question and I'm also going to answer the converse of your question because I think that's that's just as interesting. Um, but one of the things that it it really helps us understand, About the bourgeoisie is the moral order that the bourgeoisie institutes, Um, you know, which is famously a very democratic one, right? Everybody gets to vote, everybody has freedom of press, everybody is welcomed into these political rights, but also a famously contradictory one. Everybody doesn't include everybody. And there are certain constituencies that are more able to be included in a universal bourgeois order than others. And particularly one of the, you know, one of the moral orders of the bourgeoisie that first starts to develop, it's not in the 18th century, it's more in the 19th century, but it's a care and concern for the very injuries that the bourgeoisie itself causes. Right? And so what do I mean by that? Like, by the 19th century, you have societies concerned with poor children, with orphans, with animal cruelty. I mean, with all these social ills that sort of come into being with a capitalist world order, you have the bourgeoisie now saying, in certain cases, we're going to need to protect this particular group. To go back to our discussion of universalism, it's, it's never universalized, right? But there's a sense of this one starving child should be protected, this one uh, sex worker should be rehabilitated. Uh, this one animal should not be subject to cruelty. And again, I mean, that's also the sense of, of bourgeois individualism, right? The idea that the individual relationship between a particular person, and a particular other person, or a particular animal, somehow is unique enough to deserve special care without being universalized. And the reason I wanted to also answer the converse um, of the question is to say, to sort of turn it around and say, well, well, what could it tell us about Marxism now? Uh, because Marxism now is still very much, I don't want to say it's anti-animal rights, but it doesn't have a concern with animals. It, it doesn't have a concern uh, with, it's I think-
0: because It's so located in bourgeois professionals. <laughs> well,
1: then there's that. We can get to that too. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, It doesn't have an association with political enfranchisement for species other than human species, which is maybe one thing in the 1990s. I mean, I think it'd be a problem then too. But now that you have a real move in Marxism to take seriously the problems of, well, what would a green economy look like? What does Marxism have to contribute to pandemics or climate change, for example, the ability or the the inability to consider animals as subjects of political enfranchisement or economic enfranchisement and not just subjects of individual emotional cathexes. I think is particularly problematic and I think really needs to be brought into sharp relief And in, in this particular era. And again, you know, I wrote this book essentially at home during the COVID pandemic uh, when people had all sorts of critiques of animal agriculture and what kind of world it wrought, including many Marxists. But does anyone say, okay, well, then what would a different order for animals look like? What would a different politics for animals look like, a different economics for animals? No. And here, Marxists are just as consistent as their heterodox or even neoclassical and neoliberal counterparts in not taking animals seriously.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a privileging of humanity as as sort of a subject of history. And that's the one thing I I think a bunch of professors do this. You know, when we talk about contextualizing history, you always ask, what do you think in 200 years people will look back on and be like, oh, that was really horrible. And it's always animals. You know, the way we treated animals, particularly animals that we consume for for meat. um, I think it's something And can I just answer,
1: can I just respond to that? You know, if you had said- 300 years ago, can you imagine, or even 200 years ago, can you imagine pet spas, pet daycare, pet walking services, pet portraits, pet schools? I don't even, I mean, we can keep going, right? People would have looked at you like you were out of your mind, right? So for me to say something like, what would it mean to take animals seriously as political subjects? you know, the response I get, particularly from Marxists, is one of jokes and innuendos and so on. Of not taking me seriously, right? But what would it mean to take that seriously in the same way that no one could take pets seriously 200 years ago? Like, it's not like history isn't full of dialectic reversals and possibilities. And that's precisely what Marxism as a method claims to offer, is the location of those ruptures and those struggles,
0: speaking of the dialectic, before we move on to the 20th century, can you talk a little bit about this cat mouse dialectic that you articulate?
1: Yeah, the cat, the cat mouse dialectic, um, is a, I think it's a, it's a particular, um, pet of mine, um, because the, the cat is used, I'm a, I'm trained as a literary theorist and I do a lot of Marxist literary theory, um, And the cat is used as, in literary theory, the sort of ultimate example, the example par excellence of the tension between a signified, which is an object in the world, and a signifier, which is the the language, the words, the letters, and so on that might might reference it. Um, So for instance, Saussure, uh, sort of the founder of structuralist linguistics in the 20th century, makes use of the cat. Terry Eagleton, famous marxist literary historian makes use of the cat so does frederick jameson so on the one hand i sort of want to play with that but on the other hand i want to ask with with the cat and with the mouse like you know the the hope of any emancipatory politics of any particularly any marxist politics is that one has to be able to through their material actions and condi- and conditions envisage and and instantiate a sort of radical change one thing has to become another right? And so this is me, the cat-mouse dialectic is sort of me playing with structuralism, uh, which is the first philosophical movement to say that in language, identity is not fixed by the particularity of a word to an object. And I sort of ask, well, if Marxist literary theorists can see that in language, why can't they see that in politics? Like, why couldn't cats cease to be pets and become something else? And here, of course, I'm using cats as a sort of uh, metonym or sort of for all animals? Why couldn't they cease to be something else in the same way that structuralism and post-structuralism famously say there's no fixed identity, right? That's part of the freedom of a language-based politics. There's no fixed identity. Things can transition into other things.
0: So let's move on to the 20th century. And of course, probably the most famous association with cats and revolution in the 20th century is the Black Panthers. But before we get to that, Can we talk a little bit about maybe the first part of the 20th century, the moment where it really did seem like the proletariat might have a chance, might have a fighting chance with things and how cats, once again, help us see new things.
1: Yes. Um... I do think you're right that the Black Panthers are probably the most famous cats of the 20th century. Uh, I think for labor historians, there might be a, a real competition with the IWW, the International Workers of the World, um, and their famous Black cat, which is called the Tabby. Um, and, you know, the one of the things I try to do in the book is I try to show now in the 20th century how the perceived antisocial meanings of the Black cat are resuscitated and transformed by an emergent proletariat in, in particularly like the Northeast United States. Um, but this is also a moment, um, I don't know if, if your listeners will be familiar with the sabotabi as a term, but they certainly will be familiar with the arched black cat with its fur sort of sticking up and its paws out as a figure of disorder. Uh, Now, it was first used as um, an economic figure by the international workers of the world, who are probably one of the most, more most progressive and radical labor unions um, in the 20th century. And one of their organizers, Ralph Chaplin, I think we would sort of recognize as a almost like a, a, a proto 21st century meme creator. I mean, he made these 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 stickers, these black stickers that they the you know, the IWW would put all over and they tried to introduce a graphic logic of politics through this association with the black cat. And they were quite successful doing so. Uh, so one of the famous actions um, and massacres of IWW members uh, took place in Everett, Washington and I think it was 1916. I might have the date wrong. Um, but if you go back and read newspaper reports of this event, the the discourse around it includes cats, right? That, that black cats are scary, that they need to be tamed, that they need to be, uh, they have no place in a sort of uh, capitalist society. They need to be rid. They need to be, they need to be somehow declawed. Um, and one connection between that and the Black Panthers, which which I do think is interesting and I haven't seen a lot written on, is not so much the Black cat itself or the size of the cat, but the Panthers also had an incredible visual logic through the work of... Um, their minister of information emory douglas um, these are both the iww and the black panthers had commercial artists and had organizers interested in really organizing arts and culture as part of a radical politics and in both cases they turned to different black cats the sabotabi the black cat uh, in the case of the iww and the um, black panther very famously uh, in the case of the panthers
0: so i think that brings us quite naturally to the 21st century. And and where do you think we stand today with the role of cats the role of marxism i mean i to be just play my cards on the table i'm pretty pessimistic about the future of of humanity and the ability of a uh, marxist theory um, even though i would identify myself in, cats are cats will be okay though we're true cats will cat. be okay yeah, like cats. <laughs> even though i identify in many respects as a marxist so what do you what do you th- where do you think we are today and and what do you think this this sort of like uh, journey through history um, yeah. helps us understand
1: well, one thing is, of course, a potential for radical change, uh, which I think, as you as you pointed out, I mean, it was a kind of a quip, but it was also sort of true uh, that as Marxists have become more and more of a sort of academic profession, the the attachment and the envisioning of a radical change has ceased to be part of the project. So, so I think I hope that this book shows that. I hope it shows the potential for a sort of radical re envisioning, and not just of cats. Again, this is where cats are are operating in the book as a metaphor, but they operate as a metaphor for everything in all of our lives. I mean, we all know that. But how could we have a different political economy of our relations to animals? And that's a question that I hope the book is, uh, allows to be fun to consider, but I hope it's also taken seriously. And as fun as the book was to write and I hope to read, it, it has a serious question for people invested in a, ra- a radical politics, which is what is the role of non-human animals? What should our relationship of non-human animals be as we think about transitioning away, not just from capitalism, but transitioning away from a sort of industrial fossil fuel based economy. How could animals be otherwise? And one thing that I, I hope that the effect of reading cumulatively across 12 centuries of economic history is, is that really from about the 14th century on, there have always been what we might call fellow travelers within radical politics, and then by the 18th century on within Marxism, who have insisted that animals have a role to play. Rosa Luxembourg, Famously, Thomas Munster, Angela Davis, the French Jacobins who liberated uh, King Louis XVI's menagerie and invited the animals into their struggle. It's like there have always been moments of interspecies comradeship and political possibility. And if we take those seriously, maybe they can point us towards a new interspecies Economy, a new interspecies political future, one that is not so destructive, one that is not, you know, a host of one zoonotic pandemic after another, one that curtails climate change. I mean, that's the sort of utopian sally of of the book.
0: Could one write a marks for dogs or marks for monkeys, or does the cat occupy this particular place? And that's my final question.
1: I get asked that question a lot. I think that's a really interesting question. It's a question of the archive. Um, I do not think you could write a Marx for Monkeys in the archive that I saw because the archive that I went, worked through is a primarily uh, Euro-American archive. I think that's one of the limitations of the book. I hope that somebody would write a marks for Monkeys from a South Asianist perspective, from an Africanist perspective. Like, I don't know the archives. I hope that's possible with the archive I saw. No. Could one write one for horses? And or dogs? More likely. Also rabbits and frogs? Possibly. I think birds as well. That would be a different book. Do I think it would be a great idea for a series? Like, absolutely. Would it help to perpetuate, I think, uh, or to invigorate uh, a somewhat stale Marxism? I think so too. And that that is something like really genuine about the book. And I would love to see that. And I'd be happy to collaborate with whoever wanted to undertake that project.
0: Yeah, it seems like just to return to the beginning of the conversation, <laughs> not many people are buying academic books, especially as the humanities perishes. So this might be something that uh, could gain some interest. Uh, Lee Gets Claire, the old printing thank you.
1: going again.
0: Yeah, once again. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out Marks for Cats, and uh, we'd love to have you back again.
1: All right. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate the conversation.